today inside. And uh, man, it was a great time of worship, and I hope that uh, it was able to come through uh, for you. We had a great time. It's just a couple of us in the room here, and uh, we're, you know, where two or three are gathered together, the Lord is with us, and that's true in the room here, but we believe that in these weird times that we're in, that's true across Facebook <laughs> and uh, across digital platforms. Um, we looked last week at the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And today we're going to be looking at uh, just two stories later. It's actually the only full story next. Okay. Um, it's actually the, the next like real story. There's a transitional moment between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. It starts with uh, Nicodemus, uh, that kind of wraps up that story, and then Jesus goes into the wilderness and hangs out with John the Baptist for a minute, and there's baptizing happening and that sort of thing, and then he finds out that these religious leaders are hearing about what's going on with him and John, and he knows that that's going to cause trouble, so he takes off and heads up north because he's not ready to have confrontation in Jerusalem yet, and as he's headed up north is where the story in John chapter 4 happens, in Samaria with the Samaritan woman. And that's where we're going to go. Now, but before, before we get there, what I want to do is I kind of want to frame for us uh, something that I think helps us see this story, not only in the, in the narrative of what's going on in the scripture, but also maybe in the narrative of what's happening in our lives and in our culture right now. Because I think this story is very applicable to where we are in culture and speaks some things that we need to hear. There's a passage in Habakkuk. Yeah, Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3. And so if you turn to Habakkuk chapter 3, this is what it says. This is the, the prophet Habakkuk is in a situation with Israel where they have been experiencing the judgment of God. They've been experiencing things are falling apart. There's chaos all around them. It's difficult that the, the people of God are experiencing the squeeze. And, and there's, there's very little that's working well for them. They know all these stories about the power of God. They know all these stories about the great things that God has done in the past. But in their day and in their age, they desperately need to see God move. Sound familiar? Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to a name that I'll let you read and try to pronounce. Verse 2. This is Habakkuk's prayer. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. This is what I think Habakkuk's saying. He's saying, God, we know that our world is falling apart and we know that the, the disintegration, the, the kind of stumbling, things falling apart in our world, that's because that's of us. That we don't deserve goodness. That what we deserve is we deserve wrath. We know that's what we deserve. We've fallen from the beginning. We've fallen. We've messed things up. And we're experiencing all of that all over the place. But God, we've heard about what the amazing things that you've done throughout the history of your people. We need to see it again, God. We need to see it again. 
We know your wrath is important, but in your wrath, remember mercy, God. There's these things in scriptures that we call dualities. Grace and truth. Sometimes we feel like grace and truth don't really fit together. There's either truth or there's grace. In a situation, we either handle the situation with truth or we handle it with grace. And determine, it depends on which side of the line we're on, whether we want truth in the moment or whether we want grace, right? Because if I'm the one who's been, you know, kind of outside of truth, then I want grace. But if someone else has been outside of truth, I want truth. And that, that sets up a duality for us. But the thing is, is inside of God's nature, we can't separate one piece of his character from another piece of his character. He is God and all those things exist all the time within him. Another one of those that is important right now is that the foundation of God's throne, it says that it's built on two things, righteousness and justice. Think about this in terms of politics right now. Oh no, I said the word. Think about it in terms of, we are in a divided world right now. We are in a divided world. And if we take our Christian faith and submit it into politics, what you'll find is this. Many people who are hyper-concerned about personal righteousness will find themselves aligning with one political party. Many people who are concerned with social justice will find themselves aligned with another political party. But the thing is, is that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Master of all, his throne is built on the foundation of both righteousness and justice. If God submits to American politics, his throne will be divided and he is not leading the way. However, if Christ is the one who we see as king, then we get both righteousness and justice, which is what we're looking for, right? And so here's when the, the applicable part for us as we enter into this story is just to remember this. That it's very easy to be pulled apart by our world and the culture of our world into an either-or thinking because that is what the prince of the power of the air desires, to divide and to conquer. What Satan wants to do is to bring division. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And so within the church, one of the things we're looking for is a whole heart that's holy for God, a whole church that's reconciled to God together so that we can see the fullness of God leading the fullness of his people so that the full gospel can fully meet the needs of our world. That's what we're looking for. And this story helps us with that. Now, what Habakkuk says is he says, in your wrath, remember mercy. And this word remember, it's super, super important. In the Old Testament, it's one of the great commands. Remember, 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 remember. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time remembering stuff. And there's going to be a few of you on this that are going to laugh at me when I say this. But the older I get, the harder I have remembering things. And some of you are like, you're still a young buck. I don't feel like that at all right now. And, uh, you know, our minds... We know it's difficult. The more that gets packed in there and the, the more years that have filled up the hard drive, sometimes I get this thing on my phone that says, like, you're out of space. 
on your hard drive and I feel like my brain sometimes is out of space and it can't recall things easily and I get that spinning pinwheel over my, over my uh, brain because I can't remember things. And what God does in the Old Testament is he's sympathetic to the, uh, the difficulty of remembering. And so what he does is he sets the whole Jewish calendar up to help people remember. All the feasts and all the fasts of the Old Testament are to help people remember all the things that he's done in order to remember who he is so that as we face a situation that's in front of us, that we can remember how good God actually is. So here we are in need of remembrance. In need of remembering that in the midst of moments where it feels like culture is slipping and things are falling apart, that God is a God of judgment, a God of wrath, and a God of mercy. Jesus has just left Nicodemus. He's just left John the Baptist, and he's headed up north. John chapter 4. Turn with me there. This is what it says in verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea, departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now I just want to stop there for a second. It says he had to pass through Samaria. Had. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Because none of the Jews seem to go through Samaria. If they're going from Galilee to Jerusalem or Jerusalem to Galilee, they always seem to take a big detour. You know, around here uh, in East Coventry, North Coventry, we have all these little bridges. Have you ever noticed? And these little bridges seem to get cracks in them, and then they shut the road down, and you have to go way out around in order to find another way to get where you're trying to go. Well, in Jerusalem... Uh, the people who would head up to Galilee, they saw Samaria like a bridge that was out. Like, I can't go that way. I have to detour around. Because Samaria was a a place that they didn't go. It was a bad part of town. And the reason it was a bad part of town is because they didn't like the Samaritans. Why did they not like the Samaritans? 400 years before, 400 years plus before, what was going on was that the nation of Israel had been judged by God. There was wrath. And the wrath was is that the nation of Israel had been like adult kids in the house. And maybe you've heard me talk about this before. If you've heard me speak, this is one of the things I talk about all the time is the exile. And what happened in the exile is that God's children had stopped loving him. They had stopped submitting to him. They had stopped obeying him. And after a while, that got real old. And it's not that God didn't have patience. It's that things were getting worse and worse and worse. And unless he did something drastic, the people of God wouldn't turn back to him. So what he says is, kids, I'm kicking you out of the house. And so they get kicked out of the house and they have to go to Babylon. And when they go to Babylon, what he's telling them is, is that once they get to Babylon, they're going to learn just how good they have had it at home. And once they realize how good they had it at home, they're going to return with the right heart toward God, and God's going to restore their relationship. So what's going on is that these Samaritans, what happened with them is they're the people who stayed behind in Israel when everyone else went to Babylon. They were the ones who didn't obey God when God said, you're going to be taken captive and you have to go to Babylon. When they stayed in, in Israel, they ended up intermarrying with people they weren't supposed to intermarry with. 
They also started worshiping at a mountain they weren't supposed to worship at. They were only allowed to worship at Mount Zion, and Mount Zion had been taken over by the Babylonians, which is why for 70-some years, you see people, the, the people of God in exile crying out that God would restore them to Jerusalem so they could go back, rebuild their temple, and offer sacrifices to God again. That's what they were desiring. But the problem is this, is that the Samaritans never cried out that they would be restored to Jerusalem. Instead, they built their own worship center in Mount Gerizim up north, okay? And they just kind of did their own thing. They intermarried with the culture, stayed in Jerusalem, and they kind of went outside of God's plan. So when the people came back from Babylon, these Samaritans were the ones who had missed the whole boat. They were the ones who took the easy path, didn't do what God wanted, and now here they still are in that place, intermarried and having false worship. The Jews did not like that at all, okay? And so they were the bad guys. The Samaritans were the bad guys, according to the Jews. So when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, all the Jews, of course, would have contested that and said, you don't have to go through Samaria. No one else is going through Samaria. Why do you have to go through Samaria? But what John says is he had to go through Samaria. Why does the apostle John say that he had to go through Samaria? The reason is because when Jesus, when you read in, uh, in Acts, it says when Jesus is ascending to heaven, you remember his great call to his uh, disciples? Do you remember what he says to them? He says, you will be my disciples and you have to preach the gospel to all nations and you will make disciples of all nations and you will baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what he says is first thing you're going to do is you're going to go and you're going to wait in Jerusalem and you're going to pray. And then when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to start in Jerusalem. And then you're going to go to all of Judea. That's the southern part of Israel. Then where are they going to go? To Samaria. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth. You see, Jesus was going to call his children to be missionaries in all the world. And Jesus knew, I'm not going to ask them to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. And Jesus called his mission, the great story of the gospel, the new covenant, is that this was no longer just a relationship with the Jews. This was a relationship that was being offered to all people. The reason that Jesus had to go through Samaria is not because the only way to get back up to Galilee was to go through Samaria. It's because the only way to get people reconciled Reconciled to God was to go to where they are. How about you? Are there places you don't really want to go? Are there people maybe you don't really feel like hanging out with? Maybe you have to go there. Maybe the way to stay aligned with God, maybe the way to stay within your calling requires it. Maybe it's not the place where the rest of culture is going. Maybe it's not the place where the rest of your family would go. But maybe like Jesus, there's a calling. And you have to go. That's what it says. It says he had to go. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. This is in verse 5. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus was wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. How cool is that? That Jesus is at the same well that Jacob was at years and years and years and years before. Having Jacob's well in Samaritan territory, 
It's like I, I went over to, to Israel to take a tour and you go through all the Jewish sites that are in you know, Jewish territory, but then if you want to go into Bethlehem, that's occupied by a different group of people. And so you have to kind of change tour guides and all sorts of things has to happen when you go to see Bethlehem. And or you go to see Jesus' birthplace, you go to see Nazareth. Um, or when you go to see Bethlehem and see his birthplace, you have to go across lines in order to get there. Jacob's well, it's like that. You had to go across lines in order to see Jacob's well. Well, Jesus goes across the line and he's thirsty. We see Jesus as a real human being really thirsty. He needs a drink. A woman from Samaria, oh, it says, weird as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. This is noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. This is a moment. This is a big moment. By the way, it says in parentheses here, for his disciples, it says, had gone away into the city to buy food. In other words, this whole thing couldn't have happened if his disciples were around because it was so far outside of the norm that his disciples would have freaked out and they wouldn't have been able to handle the situation. But Jesus, when his disciples aren't around, when the young Jewish men aren't there, when the guys who would have been a mess because of what was happening culturally weren't there, Jesus addresses this woman. Notice he doesn't start with saying, this is what I, th this is what I have to give you. What he says is, this is what I need from you. What does God need from us? What does God of the universe need from us? And yet God, in his humility and in his service, comes to us and says, you have something to offer me. What kind of God is that? Who's willing to step down and dignify us by asking us for something. When Jesus says, worship me, when Jesus says, follow me, when Jesus says, love me, he's giving us the opportunity to give to him. What a gift that is from God. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? When there's big divides in culture, and everyone knows it, and you try to cross those lines, it starts to get weird fast. And this woman, she names it right out of the gate. As soon as he says something to her, she looks at him, she's like, what are you doing talking to me, Jewish man? You know, that's kind of, she's like, you guys hate us. And I'm a woman. They had, it was a whole male-female thing and a Jewish and Samaritan thing, both there together at the same time. And she's there. You probably know the story. She's there at high noon to get water because she already had her own issues with hanging out with people. And that's a whole other backstory. And so she's there alone instead of going like people normally would in kind of a tribe to go get water. And she's there alone. And here's this Jewish man asking her for a drink. And so she just names it. I think this woman's got some spark. You know, she's got some sass to her. And she's like, what do you think you're doing asking me for a drink of water? She had probably been hurt in many ways by men, by Jews. Here's the response. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. All right, 
If it wasn't weird enough that a Jewish man is talking to a Samaritan woman, now it gets really weird because now Jesus says to her, give me a drink. She says, what are you doing? Yeah, why are you talking to me? And he says, well, if you knew, you'd be asking me for a drink and I'd give you living water. It just got super, super weird. How is she supposed to have any idea what he's talking about? Jesus doesn't mind weird. Okay, and I want you to know that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus and if you're going to be a a messenger of the gospel, one of the things that we have to let go of is the concern about being weird. Weird's just part of it because we are strangers and aliens in this culture. You know, the culture is not like dialed in, tuned in to Jesus. In general, our culture does not follow Jesus. And so when those of us who are followers of Jesus, whom we're going to march to the beat of a different drum, which is going to look weird, and that's okay. We're supposed to be weird. (laughs) It's part of it. She names it. And he's like, okay, but I have something to offer you. This is what she says. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Um, This is what she says. Uh, the woman said to him, Sir, if you have, nothing to draw, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep, where do you get that living water? So I think uh, another thing about this woman is she's had plenty of experience with men who think that they're all that, that they're the gift from God. You know, and this is, she's like, he's like, if you knew the gift of God, and she's probably like, oh yeah, another guy who thinks he's the gift of God. You know, and then she's like, let me point out the obvious here. You're going to give me a drink You don't even have anything to draw with. You're the one asking me for water. You know, she knows the score of how it works with with men and women and with, you know, the power plays and all of that. And she's calling that out. But at this point, Jesus has her talking. And that's what Jesus, I believe, is hoping for. He's engaging her. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. At this point, I think the woman is like, okay, This has been very weird. You've baited the hook. What do I have to lose? And she asks him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and not have to come here to draw water. Do you remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus when he said you have to be born again? How can that happen? No way that I can get back in my mother's womb. It doesn't make sense. When Jesus says, I can give you water that'll make you never thirst again, what does she say? Give it to me. (laughs) Give it to me. She doesn't try to make sense of it. Notice the difference between the Pharisee, the teacher, the religious leader who knew it all and had people asking him questions and was used to being in charge versus the woman who had to show up at the well in the middle of the day, maybe to not get mocked. You see, remember Nicodemus showed up in the middle of the night to not be seen with Jesus? Well, she showed up in the middle of the day because she wasn't allowed to be with these other women. But when Jesus came and said something really weird, she didn't reject him outright. What she said is, I'll take it if it'll help. 
big difference in posture between her and him. Interesting thing is, is that all of us would look at Nicodemus as the guy who was the righteous one. And we would look at her as the one who was totally unrighteous. And in many ways, we would be right. And yet there's something about her spirit that can receive Jesus easily. Something about his spirit that really needs to be born again before it's going to hear anything. This is the moment. This is the moment. She just opened up and said, give it to me. Please give me this water. This is where we expect Jesus to be the quintessential Jesus we know. The Jesus who laughs. The Jesus who loves. The Jesus who forgives sin. The Jesus who takes care of people. This is where we expect Jesus is going to pour out in wrath, remember mercy. Here it is, Jesus. The broken woman, you get a chance to show her mercy. And what does he do? He doesn't show her the mercy that we would think he does. She says, give me that living water. And he says, okay, Go and get your husband. See, and this is where Jesus can see what's going on with her. Jesus understands that for us to truly receive the gift that he has, we have to truly come to terms with the reality of our brokenness and his wrath. If I want healing for a a little cut on my my hand, all I need is a Band-Aid. If I want my spirit made whole, man, we got to see what's deep down in there. A little surface cut, Band-Aid. If I have deep problems, I need a doctor who can figure out what's going on deep inside of me. And so what Jesus does is he says, if if you're going to want this living water, I'm going to have to deal with some things that are very deep. Go get your husband. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you are right in saying you have no husband. If you, uh, if for you have five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Oh, do you perceive that? You know, it's like, okay, this is deadpan obvious at this point. Jesus is reading her mail. What's interesting is she knows something spiritual is happening right now. She doesn't know a whole lot. She's not like Nicodemus who has all the answers. But what she has is she realizes that this is a Jewish man who just got spiritual and religious with her. And so what does she revert to? A dualism. What's between her and him? Democrat, Republican, Baptist, Lutheran, you know, whatever. You know, black, white, male, female. What are the things that separate us? And at this point, she's kind of opened herself up and said, can you give that to me? Can you give me this living water? He hits her with the personal problem she has, which I'm sure there's deep systemic injustice that she's facing in her life that is, you know, aided in all the bad decisions she's made. And yet Jesus is like, I can't give you this living water unless we deal with what's there. And at that point, she says, this is what she says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. When she said, you say, who's she saying? Jews. She's now put him in the category again of you said, you're a Jew, and this is what you guys do, and this is what we do. I'm a Samaritan woman, you're a Jewish man, don't you dare call me out for all of my junk. 
That's what I sense is going on. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will you worship what you do not know, Samaritans. We worship, and he says we Jews, worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He's explaining this whole thing to her that like, remember, you were, the Samaritans do have a problem. The Jews had it right. They went to exile. They came back. The temple was there. That was all right. But all that's about to end. Right now, it's all about to end. She's so confused and spinning right now. This is what she says. It's an amazing admission to her own inability. Unlike Nicodemus, who kind of stands in defiance, this is her broken moment. And she says, I know that a Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us of all things. You want to see a moment in Scripture when in the wrath of God he remembers mercy? You know how many people wanted Jesus to speak out loud that he was the Messiah? You know, they tried to force him to become the Messiah and become king. You know, Nicodemus asked him point blank and Jesus wouldn't respond to him. But this woman who's getting broken before him, who has been at the butt end of every joke, who's had all sorts of things in her life messed up, Jesus spoke the truth to her about her life, and she kind of was like, yeah. And in that moment, she says, I don't understand all this religious stuff, but a Messiah is coming, and he's going to tell us and explain it to us. Jesus looks at her. I just imagine him looking deep into her eyes with a huge smile on his face. And he's like, that's me. Boom! In your wrath, remember mercy. He speaks truth to her, but does it in love. He's willing to tell her about all her sins, but also willing to be the Messiah who will not only forgive her sins, but make things right in the world to help out those Samaritans. And for the next couple days, he stays there with those Samaritans. And this woman's life is changed. And the whole town comes to know Jesus. And his disciples come back. And they have no idea what's going on. But they begin to see the truth about what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. It means that, yes, he has personal righteousness. And yes, he goes after systemic justice. Yes, he has wrath. And yes, he has mercy. Yes, he has grace. And yes, he has truth. And yes, he told the Old Testament to remember. But he tells us to remember too. The great commandment in the New Testament is this. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Here's the hard thing for us to remember. Jesus. It's the hardest thing for us to remember. It's Jesus. That he is here with us, full of grace, full of truth. The spirit of Jesus the Word of God, Spirit and truth, encompassed in one person, Jesus. 
And he remembers us. And in his wrath, he remembers mercy. And he calls us to remember him. Look, I want to close up. We need to close up, but I need to tell you one thing. There's this amazing passage in in the Gospel of Luke where this woman, this broken woman, very much like this Samaritan woman, comes to Jesus when he's in another Pharisee's house. And she comes with an alabaster jar. She weeps over his feet, washes his, his feet with her hair, pours the alabaster jar on his feet. Everyone's indignant. Simon's indignant. And you remember what the Pharisee says? If this man were a prophet, he would know what she has done. How does that sound just like the Samaritan woman? And Jesus turns around and he looks at the Pharisee knowing exactly what he was doing. And he says, let me ask you something. And he tells him a story to show him this, that those who are forgiven much love much. What I need to remember is that in this story, I'm not Jesus. In this story, I'm not the apostles. In this story, I'm not the townspeople. In this story, I'm the Samaritan woman. And I need mercy. And to the extent that we know that we need mercy, we will begin to extend mercy. Nicodemus, it was going to be a long journey because he saw himself as the one who had it right. This woman knew she had it wrong. And for her, it was easy and quick to find Jesus. I hope that for us every day, we will remain humble, broken, and we will remember Jesus. He's all we need, full of grace and truth, full of spirit, full of truth, full of wrath, but full of mercy. And he loves us with everything inside of him. Praise be to God. Father, we thank you and praise you for all of your goodness. We thank you and praise you for all of your grace. We thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you, Jesus, that you in your wrath remember mercy. God, in your mercy, allow us to remember you by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.